guest today is a former deputy district attorney and currently an associate professor in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Department at Portland State University. This episode features the topic of human trafficking in this country and abroad, prostitution, democracy, and the First Amendment. He has spent over 20 years researching human trafficking, authored many articles, and worked with local and international agencies. This episode is awesome. Here is my friend, Dr. Christopher Carey. All right, Chris. So tell me about how big of a problem human trafficking is, because it's something that you hear people talk about, but I don't feel like anybody really explains how prevalent it is. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And this uh, question, which seemingly might be easy to answer, has been actually debated since we've been since I've been working in the anti-traffic movement, which has been uh, over 20 years at this at this point. So what they call it is they call it hidden populations because it's kind of hard to count. So with a lot of especially um, issues that academics are involved in, you can count, right? You can interview people, you can count specimens, you can have a control group. That's really not possible here. So we have is a lot of estimates <clears throat> and there's also an entirely separate <laughs> field of how to, uh, the profit methodological ways to kind of evaluate and guess. But the State Department puts out a report every year called the GTIP report, the Trafficking in Persons, and they do an estimate of a kind of worldwide numbers. Um, and I didn't look at the most recent ones, but you know, the estimates are any anywhere between 50 and 500,000 a year, even more, depending on how you count it. And then here uh, in the United States, the estimates around 50,000 a year. But again, those numbers vary widely. And then of course, we have kind of guesstimates for Portland and Oregon as well. And go ahead. Remember, there's different types of trafficking as well, right? So when somebody talks about trafficking, the first thing they think about is sex trafficking. But the International Labor Organization tells us that that's actually probably only about uh, 10, 15 percent. Most of it's labor, tra you know, labor trafficking from other areas, indenture servitude, that sort of stuff. Slavery. Sla yeah, sla yeah, modern day slavery. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what, based on these numbers that you can't really fully calculate, what is the biggest problem child in the world? What is the main country experiencing the largest numbers of human trafficking? Huh. Um, wow, that's a good question. Um, so I don't know <laughs> for the first <laughs> at the top of that. So I want to say something that I'm guessing about. <clears throat> but traditionally, um, we've probably looked at some areas in South Asia that have the largest uh, trafficking populations um, because they're migratory. So these are areas that traditionally have kind of moved for work. And there we're talking probably about labor as well, although a huge amount of sex trafficking. That's where I first started working on this issue in these areas of Nepal and India. So uh, there... There was, you know, there's been a lot of traditional labor migration. So maybe you'll move from your area in Nepal into West Bengal or some other parts of India working at like a carpet factory or something like that. And then you kind of figure out that the 14-year-old or 12-year-old or 15-year-old is actually going to work in a brothel for a few years. And and in some areas, it was, you know, different um, where you could earn money back and then kind of end up back in your village. And some areas, um, it was more that you see where it's that kind of... Uh, chained, guarded environment. So you're saying these young kids in some of these Southeastern Asian countries will basically go to find a job 
And then whoever the employer is, somehow over the course of time, turns them into a modern day slave, and then they end up selling them to a different producer of of labor? Sure, that's one way that it could definitely uh, work. Other ways are, you know, there's a lot of middlemen involved as well. So there's a couple of uh, pretty well-known cases of, again, not just sex trafficking, but like labor people where they think they're going to go work, do one sort of job, and they end up doing something else, right? Or they end up in a brothel area. And so we started working in the late 90s in this area of South Asia, not necessarily Southeast Asia, although that's been known for kind of sex trafficking and, um, you know, when tourists go to uh, go on vacation and the big part of their vacation is, you know, having sex (laughs) with people, you know, that's Thailand, Cambodia, we've heard about those areas as well. So I think um, it's happened a lot of different ways, but these are traditional areas where people have migrated for a long time over distances to work for areas. So they're uh, separated from their families. They're separated from kind of their protective circle. And uh, there have been a lot of things to help this, but this is a basis of migration. Wherever you've had large migration routes throughout history, you've also had, you know, unfortunately, trafficking cases. Mm-hmm. And these these young kids, I mean, we're talking about children, essentially, right? Yeah. And it and and even, yeah, even not kids. I mean, we, you know, we say 18, you're, you know, not, you're now an adult. Why do we draw that line at some point? And you can't, you know, do everything when you're 18, right? So, but yeah, I would say... Um, in some of these places, the average age is, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. We had one study we did actually here in Portland on um, we call CSEC, the commercial sexual exploitation of children. And that average age was about 15.5, which is their first contact with DHS. They had been commercially exploited. But I would say 15 is probably the it's hard to do an average age because every country is different. And then even within the different regions of the country, they're different as well. Hmm. Well, and I imagine a lot of those people probably don't even know their real age, right? Well, it it depends. So I've been uh, working on this, like I said, since the late 90s. So, you know, in terms of like digitization and electronics and cell phones, that has exploded over the last 25 years. And with that, records have increased as well, right? So um, all over the, you know, you can be in the most rural area, well, you know, been in some super rural areas of the world and you've got cell phone access. So you've got access to kind of digital records. So yeah, there are some areas that people don't have their age and don't have birth certificates. That's becoming less and less common as, uh, like I said, files get digitized, you know, NGOs spread throughout the world and helping people kind of document when they were, when they were born. Wow. Uh, so what keeps these people trapped in in these positions? Are, are there just like thugs at the top with guns that – or is there nowhere to run? Like, I mean, what keeps them trapped in, in these areas? Yeah, it – again, the answer is always it depends because every situation is unique and every area of the world is, is different. And even, like I said, there are areas um, – that I have been to in India outside of Calcutta, for example, you know, that are huge areas of of brothels, you know, which, you know, technically they're illegal, but they're accepted there and you're not seeing chains and things on the doors. But you have, um, you know, I think if you talk to <clears throat> victims advocates and survivors advocates and trauma-informed care, you would, 
you know, hear words like manipulation, right, control in lots of different ways, and that comes both physiologically and psychologically. And, you know, you see a lot of those things as well here. So it literally kind of runs the gamut if you take somebody out of their element, out of their home, and isolate them, and then start to manipulate them. Uh, there's a whole range of things that you can do. But we've heard that, especially early on when we were working with trafficking, you'd hear like, well, why didn't you just run? Or why didn't you run at any opportunity that you can? And you know, we know now that trauma, bond, trauma bonds and control can be pretty hard and pretty intense. So you know, maybe there is an open door somewhere. But if you don't feel like you succeed, if you don't uh, – feel like that you have self-worth, if you have all of those things that you've been manipulated by somebody by, it's going to be really hard to run. Mm -hmm. And you said in Portland, you, you've studied mm -hmm. the, the amount of people that come through Portland. And what is that number, if mm -hmm. you had to guess? Um, well, the most recent numbers that I've seen have, were put out by the state, and they looked at... Um, I think it was over a year or two-year period, about 700 people they identified that had been, um, I think the report said survivors of human trafficking. But there's been some issues with those numbers. So the question is, how did they count? Who did they count? So there are various ways to count. The first study that I did um, you know, with uh, some a great team of folks was back in 2013. And what we did is we counted between 2009 and 10 and 2013, and it was just like we were literally kind of making things up as we could. So nobody had done this before. So we went and worked with DHS here, and they had a child exploitation team. And then we worked with one nonprofit, and we just said, what do you, you, know, what do you have? What are the numbers that you're seeing? And we were able to identify about 570 individual it, like not double counting, individual kids that had come in contact either with this nonprofit or DHS over a four-year period. And we know for sure that that was an undercount. And again, this is a decade ago almost now. Well, it would have to be, right? Because you only counted the ones who essentially got out? Yeah. So uh, again, yeah, this is a good point. So we contacted the folks that had engaged that had contact with DHS or with this nonprofit. So you know that's a small, small percentage of the larger pool. And statisticians, and I'm a qualitative researcher, which means I'm an ethnographer. I collect stories. So I don't really do a lot of math. But uh, there's you know quantitative methodologists. And that's really where the debate is. If you have a population or a sample of folks that come into contact, either with law enforcement or social services, that you know there's some other pool out there. And there's a lot of mathematical ways that I don't fully understand to take that small sample size and extrapolate from those things. So that's where that kind of debate comes to. But it also is an interesting question because um, a long time ago, I was a prosecutor in Multnomah County before I kind of made the transition into academia and did PhD work. So when I was first asked to do this, that was my natural inclination of place to go. I'm like, ah, oh, well, I'm just going to call the DA's office and PPB and say, up. Oh, Let's go. How many do you have? And count. And you have to go through this thing called human subjects, which you have to, you know, say you're going to do ethical research. And they didn't have any cases. I think there was about two over three years. And you're like, well, certainly that's not true because yeah. we have all of these anecdotal reports. 
And, uh, you know, it's a funnel if you think about this, kind of the law enforcement system. So you have crime that's committed and you have some portion of that crime of people that get arrested. And then you have some smaller portion of that of people who after their arrest actually get indicted or they file misdemeanor charges on. And then there's a smaller part of those that plead guilty to something else. And then there's a smaller part of those that actually go to jail, go to court. And then there's some, you know, some people are declared innocent and not guilty, right? So using strictly the criminal justice system to count trafficking survivors didn't prove to be very robust. So we needed to um, expand and take a step away from that and look at kind of social service providers and folks that are coming into that area. So these cases in Portland, what industries did they typically come from? Yeah, so my work and the work we did was focused on sexual exploitation. So we were kind of just looking um, – and there, ha there has been work on labor. Um, I think in the agricultural industry, there have been some allegations um, in some of the um, – yeah, I want to say – labor. And then down south on the coast, maybe, there was a couple of illegal marijuana farms that they thought people had been working on and been trapped um, and actually had a case similar to that uh, that I testified in California many years ago as an expert witness about somebody that had been taken from Honduras. Um, so you have that. And then, but in terms of commercial sexual exploitations, you have kind of traditional things. You have 82nd Avenue, which we called the track for years, which... Um, Pre-COVID, you know, you didn't see a lot of folks kind of working, but if you drive down 82nd now, it it seems to kind of be on the rise again. Of course, with the advent of the internet and uh, apps, that has really kind of taken over um, the ways people kind of use to engage in commercial sex. People are using apps for prostitution? You bet. Which you ones? Bet. Um, the allegations are from Instagram, Snapchat, some of the dating apps they've seen, uh, the folks that I've worked with have kind of seen come on there. And then, um, you know, and then there's an article in the Willamette Weekly, I want to say it was probably a year ago now, maybe a little less, that also talked about the way police are doing stings these days for prostitution. And a lot of that is online, right? You're either advertising services or you're using code words for like young people and um, seeing who kind of answers those ads. Okay. And which countries are a majority of these people working in Portland or they're, being trafficked in Portland? Here. They're from the States. They're from the States. Mm -hmm. There is a small percentage of what we call foreign-born trafficking victims or survivors. Um, we don't see a large portion of that here in Portland, but there are other areas that you see that, a lot of the border areas, um, a lot of bigger cities, right? I mean, we're, we like to think Portland's a big city, but, you know, compared to LA or New York or Chicago or some of these other places, it's, you know, we could fit into the corner of some of those places. So um, internationally, you see that a lot too um, in border areas. So I just got back from Denmark and Sweden where... Um, a lot of the trafficking victims are foreign. You know, they're not from those countries. So in the States, the majority of them are local in, from the States. Portland. In yeah, Portland. Yeah, yeah. In the States, again, it's different every place you go. So if you talk to somebody that does this work in Houston, they might say, nah, they're seeing a lot of uh, Latina or Latino 
folks that come through there, just depending on kind of where you are. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you see more commonly news about trucks of people coming across the, the Mexican border. Right. Yes. And so, so you see a lot of that migration. And there's a couple of kind of distinctions that we've tried to make in the trafficking field for a while. One is the difference between smuggling and trafficking. So smuggling is, you know, I'm at the border. I pay you 1500 US dollars to sneak me across, you know, from someplace in Mexico into the United States. Not trafficking unless the person is under 18 years old because minors can't consent, right? Um, so that's 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 smuggling. Trafficking, you get taken either against your will or fooled. Now, sometimes, and I've had a few cases. I talked about this earlier. This case I had in San Francisco many years ago, where um, you know the evidence was the person came up. Uh, had been in the States before, was looking for work, was from Guatemala, paid a coyote to smuggle them across the border, took him to Phoenix. I think this was July. Was supposed to be able to have a job kind of working construction or in landscape and that either didn't ever exist or he got sold for someplace else. Early 20s, maybe late teens, uh, it was a man. And uh, – they took his shoes in July in Phoenix, so you couldn't leave, right? I don't know if you've ever been to Phoenix in July. I used July. to live there, yeah. Oh, well, okay. There yeah. you go. So uh, – and I lived there too, and I don't think I've ever been any place in the world as hot as Phoenix in July or August. Yeah. So uh, – and then put him in a van and said, you know, you're going to go to this other place in California – Took him to LA, transferred him to another van, went up to San Francisco, took him to the Tenderloin area and said, there's no construction jobs, but uh, you're going to sell crack. And uh, he wasn't very good at it. He got arrested within like 15 minutes and his case <laughs> proceeded through the system. So that's an example of somebody that comes across the border, smuggled across the border, but that turned into a trafficking case. And in fact, that was one of the defenses under what they call a coercion defense that uh, the defense used in that case. Well, yeah. And in a country like the United States, where you're required to have a bunch of different documentation to get a job or get an apartment or do anything, he probably had nothing. So he couldn't run and go anywhere. What was he going to do? Right. Yeah. And so you see that as well. So there have been a couple of documented cases um, on the East Coast with diplomats, foreign diplomats actually uh, engaged in trafficking with their domestic help, right, where they'll bring somebody over from their country. I can't remember the countries um, off the top of my head right now, but they'll take their passports. And you take your passport, you're in a foreign country, you control um, – they go out, you control the social circle, you can control money. Yeah, that's, that is trafficking. It's form of control, even though there aren't bars on the walls, mm -hmm. you know. And I think a couple of those cases they called the one – there's a 1-800 line that the Department of Justice runs and um, – or maybe there was an incident of domestic violence and the neighbors reported. But literally it's like, you know, somebody didn't say, oh, my God, this person is being trafficked, but something else tripped them up. So a second ago, you said coyote? Yeah. That's the name for smugglers that would bring folks across <clears throat> the border. And have you ever had a conversation with any of these people? I've never spoken. Uh, that's probably not true. Uh, 
You know, I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody that's claimed to be a smuggler. I've talked to folks that have been smuggled, but I don't think they're I don't think I've ever had a conversation with somebody that's been the actual smuggler. That's pretty well documented as well, right? So if you look at ICE, border control, folks that work on that stuff, there's also a huge range of kind of groups that work on the border. Um you know, and try to, and of course, that's a huge debate as well. How to control that? You keep building walls. You put people, push people further out into the desert. You know, there's controversial groups on every side. Folks leaving folks water, and you know, it's, yeah. But I've never had a conversation with a smuggler, so I can't give you the inner workings of that. It just seems like one of the most detestable things you could ever do. I. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world. Um, but selling people? Yeah, we've been doing it for thousands of years. And it's awful. And some of the, I mean, I've had seen, yeah, not super pleasant stuff. Not just here in the States, but also abroad. You know, huge areas where you're like, how are we living in these conditions? How are we allowing people to do that? But, you know, uh, my, it's funny. My students, not funny. My students, because when I would teach this and when I was traveling a lot, you know, they would ask me stories and we would talk about this stuff. And... You know, I'm never, I mean, I, I shouldn't say this. It, it's never ceased to amaze me the uh, cruelty that human beings have inflicted on one another. That said, you know, I have also seen nothing as powerful as the human spirit to overcome that in seemingly unbelievable odds sometimes. So, yeah, I think a lot of the history of human beings is not being very nice to each other and, and doing things. We have the history of it in the United States as well as other places around the world. So this is one manifestation of that and fairly new. I mean, the TVPA, which is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, was passed in 2000. And we know it's been going on, you know, since before then. So when we started working on this, you didn't even call it human trafficking. That word was used um, in legislation for the first time with that law. What, what did the law do? Or what was it attempting that's, that's to do? That's a good thing. Maybe we should have started with that. Yeah. So the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, and I think it's been amended and updated maybe six or seven times now. It could be more. Is what it did is it set out a federal definition and defined different forms of trafficking and then gave um, some procedures for things like we have a T visa. So if you're a victim of trafficking, um, you can actually apply to stay in the United States and you don't have to be afraid of your trafficker. But what it said, and it took from another piece of kind of international legislation called the Palermo Protocol, which Palermo, Italy, but it was the UN got together and they said, okay, trafficking is happening. We have to define it. We have to kind of talk about it in order to understand it and then we can combat it better. And so what it did is it said, um, trying to think of the exact words. I'm going to mess the exact words up. But it um, was basically um, anytime you take a person and move them, it doesn't have to be across international boundaries or any boundary, but any movement of somebody for an illegal purpose uh, that's done by force, fraud, or coercion, if they're over 18 and if they're, if they're under 18, then you don't need that force, fraud, or coercion is trafficking. But remember, it has to be for an illegal purpose. So commercial sexual exploitation, child soldiers, labor, organ trafficking, all of these things come under that. 
domestic servitude where you're not paying people. And there's, um, I'm trying to remember if this was actually a case, but there was an allegation, and I think it was a case, um, laid against a third-party contractor where they brought uh, Nepalese workers over, and I think they were working in like one of the army bases in Iraq supporting kind of the U.S. troops and the allies, and there was an allegation of trafficking because they hadn't paid contracts and other other folks. So it's kind of really a wide net. Well, yeah. I I think about Foxconn where Apple makes iPhones in China. The, all those people can't be legit. I mean, what, that's, that's a, a legal reason to have a person like based on what you just said. Could somebody traffic those people into Foxconn? They're doing work. They're getting paid. Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. There's certainly been lots of allegations, like especially uh, not just there, but also in Bangladesh and other places. And, and actually in um, what was the one in the U.S. territory? Saipan. There was a factory garment. There were some allegations made there as well. And again, it, it depends on the definition, right? So, uh, you know, you have a wage dispute, you know, not not trafficking for the most part, but you bring some and you isolate them and you don't pay them or you pay them very little and they're not free to leave. Yeah, now you're starting to talk about um, a criminal case, investigations, violations of the law, that sort of stuff. So how do you get around this? How do you stop it from happening? Um, well, if I could answer that question, right, <laughs> then we'd be able to stop it now. But I think we've got – and again, so, so we're learning. Um, but, you know, the folks that I've worked with um, in law enforcement, um, you know, there's different investigative techniques. But you have everything from kind of uh, large organizations that work on this stuff to, you know, one-off, two-off folks um, – so it's challenging because a lot of times survivors don't want to talk. They've had negative experience with law enforcement. Um, they've usually had a history of trauma and exploitation. So you have to kind of do a trauma-focused approach and interview. We know the first points of contact are really important. So law enforcement working with social service agencies are there as well. And then you also have to make sure that you understand the population and what they're moving. So I said one of the big distinctions early on that we make is between smuggling and migration. The other distinction that people still debate these days are between sex work and human trafficking. And they're definitely not the same thing. You know, there's consensual sex work out there. You know, that that for sure happens, whether it's technically legal legal or illegal, right? Whether you're in the United States or in Denmark where it's decriminalized or in Sweden where, check this out, it's uh, legal to sell sex but illegal to buy sex. So the <laughs> prostitute sex workers can't get arrested but the buyers or you know, the slang word for that is the Johns yeah, the get John. arrested. Um, that's called the Nordic model and yeah, then you have something like where it's decriminalized, which is in Denmark, which is this kind of gray area. Um, and then you have places like Germany and the Netherlands that it's totally legalized as long as you step through a bunch of regulatory steps and get your certificates and all those other things. So depending on where you're living in the world and what the laws are really drive your law enforcement, your investigative techniques, how you work at things, how you – who you interview, who you work with, how you set up your stings, that sort of stuff. 
It's a broader discussion, but to me, it seems like when you make stuff illegal, you allow a, a criminal underworld to thrive. You allow a black market to thrive. We tried to prohibit alcohol for, I think it was 13 years, 1919 to 1932, somewhere in there. It was a horrible idea. Yeah. It, it gave rise to Al Capone and uh, a, a seedy underbelly of criminals and um we have this uh enormous drug problem uh drugs being manufactured and sold and brought into the country uh, i was just reading this morning um, fentanyl overdoses mm -hmm. are the leading killer of people between 18 and 45 yeah, so we've had two kids at, uh, I'm going to try to say this without crying, but we have two kids at my uh, my daughter's high school that passed away because of fentanyl overdoses. And um, I, yeah, I don't know what the relationship between that is in like legality or illegality, but it's getting very dangerous these days. And, you know, the conversations that we have, um, I mean, you know, don't, kids shouldn't do drugs anyway, right, regardless. <laughs> but... But you know, I'm 54, so I'm a kid of the like 80s, right, and 70s, where there was drugs everywhere, and it was Chicago, and people were doing things. I don't think you can do even close to that anymore, because any time that you take any any pill or substance that you don't know exactly where it came from in Portland or all over the country now, you are risking death because of fentanyl. It is by far. Um, probably one of the most dangerous things out there and a threat to to youth and and folks that even are long-term, you know, drug users if this gets mixed in. Yeah, and you I mean, the, so the argument is what what I'm just expanding upon or, or thinking about is that if you legalize drugs, you would have a situation where things could be sent through the FDA or, or whatever uh, institution it is. Things could be regulated. It would eliminate or change the, the black market for, for drugs. These, um, I mean, you could go, hypothetically, you could go to the store and you could buy a cocaine that would not be laced with fentanyl. And all these overdoses, kids in high school who are just doing pills or whatever, who are accidentally ODing on this uh, super potent drug, the argument is if you legalized it, it would take away the stigma. It would allow people to, to do drugs. And I mean, people argue that then everything would go to shit and everybody would be on drugs all the time, but I don't think that's what would happen. I equate it to marijuana. I equate it to alcohol. And what it took me a while to get there, what I'm saying is why isn't prostitution legal? Yeah. Why aren't you able to do what you want to do with your body? I'm just guessing. I don't know the answer. If that were the case, if prostitution were legal everywhere, maybe you wouldn't have these brothels where these girls were being sold and someone else is making money off their body. I don't know. Do you have an answer for that? <laughs> <laughs> You're a really good interviewer. Uh, so this is – this. I mean, people are debating this right now. I can kind of tell you what my opinion is from working on that, and I'll kind of do that, but let me work my way to that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, this is the debate and the question, you know, prostitution, sex work, um, you, what's the status should it have, right? Should it be completely legalized? Um, should it be something like decriminalized, which is this kind of grayer zone area, uh, but 
doesn't kind of fall into the state's regulatory scheme, which also still excludes people, um, or should you adopt the Nordic model? Remember, selling is legal, buying is illegal, or should it just be totally banned? So you've got all of these kind of flavors to choose from, and you have different countries that have looked at different things. So um, if you look at countries that have, and I just came back from a country, I taught a class um, and we visited a lot of these places. So in Denmark, where you have decriminalization of it, um, the people that we spoke to in the sex work community, they enjoy that status because the government kind of is in, in their face. They're not telling people who can do what and uh, who can't do what. It's a self-regulated industry. There is a third-party law there that says that you can sell sex, but if a third party benefits from that, it's called the pimp, their pimping law. But it's been interpreted to mean things like if you have a driver, <laughs> if you have somebody that takes calls for you and sets up dates for you. There's a famous case called the Telephone Ladies in Denmark um, where they went after and prosecuted, I don't think it was successful, um, former sex workers that were not in the industry anymore, but were like taking calls for other sex workers and setting up uh, appointments for them um, or rent somebody a room. So that that's one aspect of that. Um, but I think if you listen to a lot of sex workers advocates group, they were like, yeah, I think decrim strikes the right approach, especially from what we call a harm reduction perspective. So just like with drugs, people have been, you know, having sex and paying for sex for a long time. Forever. Yeah, forever. And they've been getting high forever, mm -hmm. right? And so are these inevitable part of society? And if it is, what's the best way to work on that? And if you look at the harm reduction community, which we have a really good community here in Portland, uh, they would say, yeah, it's there. And let's kind of figure out how to have an approach where people can do it safely and not get sexually transmitted diseases and be from uh, free from interpersonal violence and be able to make money and deposit that money in a bank and do all of those things um, that you can't do when it's illegal. Now, the other side of that, folks would be like, no way. Like that's just giving in to the problem. Like this is a crime. Um, and some of these folks would say, I don't care how old you are. You can never truly consent. Maybe you must, you know, no one would ever fully consent to, you know, no. And, and like, let's be honest, most of the folks most sex workers identify as female. That's the way they, they – and most buyers identify as male and mm -hmm. present that way. And so um, I think that um, – I just lost my trend of thought for a second. But um, yeah, that they would – you know, if you made those conditions where you could do this in a safe environment, that, you know – I think most sex workers would say, yeah, do that. The other side of that though, again, oh, that's what it was, was that you can never consent and it's never a, a choice because there's always other economic opportunities and you must be coerced. Now, this comes from a moral – most of our laws are vice-based, right? Moral-based. They come from Judeo-Christian ethics and laws and this is not appropriate. Yeah, there. it just doesn't make sense to me because no matter what your job is – you're selling your body and you're selling your time, which is the most precious thing that anyone has. When you go to work at Amazon factory and you're packing boxes, you're making $15 an hour, or whatever, you're, you're exercising your body, 
You're giving those muscles to Bezos. You know, you're walking around doing stuff. He's returning money to you for what you were providing. I don't know how anyone can argue that sex is different. You're just, you are providing your body as a service to someone willing to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think, you know, uh, a couple of things, right? I think a lot of people would agree with just what, what you said. And I would probably agree with just, you know, what you just said. I think a lot of times you're saying, well, this is different because it's, there's always a power in, this is the allegations, right? There's always a power in balance, which means the person purchasing the sex always has power over the person selling, which I actually don't think is necessarily true. And remember, we're talking about consensual adult sex, right? So so we're not talking about kids. We're not talking about coercive situations. We're not talking about third-party situations where I'm like, got your cell phone or your passport or any of those things. So – um, so I think, yeah, it's, and, and that's in fact what folks in the movement would argue that it's a form of labor like anything else and should be regulated and taxed and adults free to be able to make that choice. And we make distinction between adults and kids all the time. I mean, there's child labor laws, although those are pretty recent, right? In our mm -hmm. history of labor. So, yeah. you know, the 20th century. So, um, but we regulate, you know, how many hours kids can work, the, what industries they can work in. <clears throat> you have to take safety precautions. Same thing. Yeah, it it just seems to me that it's one of those things that because you ban it, because you make it taboo, you make it more desirable, and you allow <clears throat> this criminal underworld to thrive. If you you would take the power from them, and yes, I'm sure there would still be trafficking, and they would find other ways to do horrible things to humans, but maybe that would help a little bit in that part of the industry. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the that's that's the argument. So there's been a couple of uh, not there's been a couple of research studies on this, uh, and they come from the field of economics. I'm not sure I agree with their conclusions, um, and I, you can find them on the internet. But um, they said the. The argument was that if you legalize this in certain areas, then you actually have a positive relationship with trafficking, which means that – and this is all theoretical, right? This is economic theoretical stuff. Um, and the argument is, if I'm getting this right, is the legalization of that process will cause people who want to buy commercial sex but won't because they're deterred from their – because it's illegal and we don't know how many people there are. <clears throat> what that will do is expand the market more than the demand can keep up with it. And so whenever there is an over – whenever there's high demand, you always have an increase in trafficking. Now, again, this is super theoretical and I think it's probably been <clears throat> disproven in a lot of places. Um, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands. Um, and so – yeah, and I think m many folks that work in the harm reduction area would say, yeah, you need to legalize this and then regulate it outside. The argument again against this, and I, you know, I've had this discussion <laughs> many times over the years, is that, well, if that's true, then why aren't, and I don't, I don't know the f stats on this, but the argument is that, well, why aren't most of the sex workers in the Netherlands or Germany German, right? Why are they foreign nationals that migrate here to do this work if it's such a good deal, like for Germans and, and Dutch folks? Um, 
And people migrate for lots of different reasons, right? And well, I it's think Europe. Choices. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, but but again, I think that goes back to your point is what makes this distance, right? Is it the intimacy of it? Is the closeness? You have lots of jobs where people are working, you know, in very close conditions with other people. Is there a moral or an ethical argument? Is there a religious undertone to this stuff that we still haven't? you know, shook free from in this case, because a lot of laws, right, are based on, especially vice-related laws of regulating human contact, conduct, I'm sorry, which is what crime does, right? Crime is just a label, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but, you know, crimes and people have been doing things to each other for thousands of years. It's only recently that we've labeled something, oh yeah, that's a crime, right? And if you look at the history of a lot of these things, some of the first crimes were things like trespassing on the king's land, right? You know, you could assault folks, but uh, if you shot one of the king's deer, you were in big trouble, right? <laughs> Where does that come from? Those yeah. come from moral codes that they're trying to regulate conduct. Yeah. So. Well, I think today, a majority of it is financially based. I don't think anybody does anything at any level unless they can make money off of it. Yes. Yeah, and they're, they're obviously making money off prostitution being illegal. Yes, and Through I think law enforcement or the FBI or whatever, especially here in the states, right, where you can't do, you know, you have to pay for everything, right? So, uh, yeah, there are definitely industries uh, involved. There are people that are profiting kind of from both sides of that, and I don't necessarily mean that in a in a negative way, you know, but um, there are people that, you know, have services and programs that are based on the assumption that this is, sex work is illegal or it's really closely tied to human trafficking. And uh, and there are, you know, advocates on both sides and industries on both sides that kind of work on that stuff as well. So yeah, there's definitely people profiting. Um, and we know for sure, especially with something I think like sex work, that um, people will find a way. There's not a city in the world that this there's not a larger city in the world that this doesn't exist in in some form. And, you know, people will talk about exploitive relationships that happen all the time. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen in any sort of situation. And so, you know, whether there's actually an exchange for money or not, or you're exchanging sex for a place to sleep at night or a meal, who's to say? It's hard to make those distinctions, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, what... What do Amsterdam and Nevada have to say about any of it where prostitution <clears throat> is legal? Yeah. So I can't – so again, um, you know, it's it's also really interesting. We started to work on this area. You had kind of groups and factions, right, across the table. And the really interesting thing is um, within all of these groups – there's usually greater differences within the group than there is between the groups. So what that means is that sometimes anti-trafficking or folks from Holland that speak on this have much larger differences than folks that are in the other group that thinks it should be illegal. So it's hard to say, yeah, this is what they say about it. Um, I think if you looked at lobbyists for the brothel industry, folks that work in that area, they would say, yeah, we have a unique thing here in you know northern Nevada where we can legalize, you know, have counties that have legalized prostitution and legalized brothels and it performs a tax base and nobody is here against their will and there's multiple health checks. We have to jump through a lot of hoops and it provides um, 
employment or contract employment and you know it's fairly transitory so people come for a few months and then leave for a few months and it's a form of work that's what they would say and i think and you know some of the and i think the international label organization would say it's work as well don't i don't I know we're being recorded. I'm not 100% sure on that, but certainly that would be the position in Holland and in Germany. And if you talk to sex workers groups probably around the world in the country, they would say, yeah, this is uh, this is legitimate work. And in fact, <clears throat> there's unions. So in West Bengal, India, one of the largest unions is the sex workers union. Hmm. And so getting back to Portland the the people that you encountered you said a lot of the sex trafficking happened on 82nd avenue and what what other i'm just trying to visualize and help anyone listening to visualize how would you even know that anyone was in a position against their will you, i mean it's not like you walk down the street and they're wearing a red shirt and you're like oh they're yeah. Trafficked. Yeah. Like, you, how could you ever know? Yeah. So you, you um, well, if so, so what I said is, eighty second has traditionally been kind of one area for street based sex workers. Um, how many of those are trafficked or not? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. We haven't like that specific area. Haven't kind of uh, while that's been known in Portland. Like, I haven't studied just that area. Although a lot of police stings back in the day were focused. <clears throat> On that area, and in fact, if you go way back into the archives, we used to have these things called prostitution-free zones and drug-free zones, which were uh, declared unconstitutional, um, I want to say in the early 2000s, but there were these areas where you could cite somebody for trespassing, um, you could give them a violation, and then if they showed up again, you could ban them from the area. Like I said, there was, uh, these were declared unconstitutional, I want to say in the early 2000s, but it's fascinating history if you want to look that up. It's the drug-free zone area in Isn't Portland. every zone the drug-free zone? Uh, well, what was happening, <laughs> right, because it's, it's all legal. No, well, this was these special areas um, around old town, what's now the Pearl District, where they were high trafficking areas, not uh, drug trafficking areas, um, or high areas of prostitution. And so what the law gave you the ability to do, if I'm remembering this correctly, is someone would enter it and then commit a crime for something, right? So in addition to getting a citation for whatever the allegation was, you could, you could be banned from that area because of that prior con conduct. So... So check this out. So you would be in a place not doing anything wrong, but based on your prior conduct in that area, you could get issued a trespass citation. And then you could get brought into court because you were banned from a certain area. Not hmm. – and the – Fairly, it was a fairly radical way to deal with crime in one area, but think about it, right? So you're in an area, you haven't done anything wrong, but based on your past conduct, you can't be there, and now you've committed another criminal violation. So there were these arguments, is it double jeopardy? Are you being prosecuted for the same thing twice? And I think the judge said it was, and there might have been some other constitutional violation. Well, yeah, you, you essentially are banned from a part of the city. Right. And so the argument was what if you – and there were exceptions. They tried to make it constitutional for like work or religious services or school or something. But the judge was just like, get out of here with this. You can't do that. But the other thing that it did is it just – again, 
it's this con like it's you know like whack-a-mole right like we're going to stop it in this area and it just moves to another area because it's something humans have been doing for thousands of years right drugs having sex with people so again it's this if it is spreading out and if you're trying to hammer down in one area then you're just left with this not in my backyard approach, which doesn't really help the city because it just pushes it out someplace else. Yeah, there's a lot of that happening right now. Um, yeah, a lot, of course. With, you with see the that with population, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, the Pearl District that was probably just based on money and and uh, well-off people not wanting drug dealers in the area. And so we, we're not worried about them de dealing drugs. We just don't want them doing it here in the nice part of Portland where we're trying to do business. Yeah, and a lot of this started before the Pearl District. Uh, you know, the Pearl District didn't always look like the Pearl yeah. District. That stuff is, you know, the last 20 years for sure. Um, so there was a lot of drug and hand-to-hand -hand stings and things that I probably still go down there because I'm not involved so much in the law enforcement community. But it was a high area. You'd go to work in the DA's office Monday morning and you'd have a stack of like hand-to-hand -hand drug deals that, you know, the police were setting up and, I mean, a stack to go through. And so it was one way to deal with that issue. But then again, it, it spread out. And now we've got things that we never imagined before, as we talked about earlier, with things like fentanyl and how do you you can test for that, right? But you have to bring your drugs in to a place and say, would you test this heroin for me? Yeah. Now, you know, in Oregon, as you know, I don't know if you've done anything on Measure 110 here at all, but, you know, possession of drugs are decriminalized mm -hmm. here. And so that was one way to try to kind of look at the – that was one way to look at, you know, how to handle drug use and, you know, declutter the criminal justice system and those sort of things. And I think the results have been mixed on that for sure. So, In in what way? Well, um, there's been uh, – and again, this is – I'm just – you don't have any special info. I'm just like getting this from the paper, right? Okay. So um, apparently the first kind of issue is that um, the referrals had been – I think something like less than 70 people had been helped over – one or two year period, you know, and the idea was that we'd get thousands of people into rehab. Along with that, the funding hasn't followed where it was supposed to follow. So I think the development of like beds and rehab centers has been delayed. I think we're starting to see that more now. I think there's a center that was just opened outside of Portland somewhere that I heard has beds. So that's two. The third one, if you listen to some law enforcement folks, it's taken away their ability to now investigate for other crimes or bring people into the criminal justice system, which for some folks they say is a lifesaver, right? Um, most encounters with the criminal justice system, you know, aren't positive, right? Yeah. And don't have huge positive outcomes. So um, yeah, I think you have that part. And then on the other folks, you have the harm reduction folks that say, yeah, it's beginning. You know, we've no one, no other state in the country has ever done this. So it's going to take some time. And we're the first ones through. So yeah, it's going to be bloody and it's going to take some time and we're going to work out all of the issues. So we'll see. We'll see whether, uh, you know, the election that's coming up, we'll see. It'll be interesting whether the people of Oregon have the patience to keep waiting and seeing these things because they have two very radical different choices, you mm -hmm. know, for governor. So I had the mayor of Milwaukee, Mark Gamba, down here. And I remember vividly asking him the question, why don't they, why doesn't the federal government and the state, local state government, why don't they just create an app and let everybody vote on exactly whatever the topic is? I was like, why don't they do that? And he's like, they could totally do that. 
But why would they? Because if you could just put every issue out to each person, like it's an American Idol competition, and just <laughs> tally the votes, it would be a dramatically different place. Because there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people want to see change, but there's no way it's going to happen because there's five or six people determining whether or not it will happen. You, you, can, you can vote for ballot measures and do that kind of stuff. But I mean, anytime there's any large bill that gets put in front of Congress, there's all these little things that get thrown onto it. And it just becomes this bloated thing that is not really about the core subject. And that's the bummer about this country. And I mean, probably any democracy, you're not really gonna get the things done that you think should be done. There, there's too many other people involved that can profit off of everything, and they're running the show. We, we don't really have a voice. Yeah, this is the challenge, right? So um, when you <clears> – because it's, you know, democracy for the few for the most part. I can't remember what the latest numbers are to run for political office, but it's millions, you know, for governor of the state and, and you know – 10 million or probably more, I'm probably way underestimating for, you know, a House race or a Senate race. And, you know, you have lobbyists. So whenever you have the un, pretty much the unregulated money going into politics that not only is challenged being traced, but is now free speech, you know, that's how people talk. And, uh, you definitely have um, built-in profit motives, and that's a huge industry, right? The the idea of the status quo and how we built these things and how laws get passed are um, are really challenging. You know, that said, I do think for local stuff and for state stuff, there is influence that citizens can make and get together. And I mean, our voting rates are pathetic, right? If you look at other countries in the world, and so if you've got somebody that's got an idea and has their stuff together and you have social media now. So I've seen, you know, we've seen people mobilize things through those areas at a local level um, and, you know, media battles back and forth. Now, of course, professionally, this takes lots of money, right? And we see this debate even in today, right? The headlines between, um, is it Gonzalez and Hardesty going back and forth, you know, and, you know, who's got money and who's spending money on things. But it's definitely a challenge. There's a book, uh, I think it's called Democracy for the Few, Michael Parente, who talks about this stuff and the evolution of this process. It happens everywhere, but I think in the United States, because of some of our Supreme Court decisions, we've got this, you know, huge gap of uh, what you can pay for in politics that you just can't do in other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's really zero guarantee you have any chance unless you have a ton of money. Yeah. And in order to raise money, you have to make agreements with corporations and um, it's just such a terrible system. Yeah, and you got, what you have to do, and, and, and the other issue with it is, especially coming back from places in Europe, um, we have you have a choice of two parties, right? There's 350 million people, give or take, in the country. Like, really? Like, two choices with all the – I mean, you have – it seems like there should be more flavors, right? For sure. To choose from either left, right, centrist, different ideas, different folks. And we don't have that because the way that our system is set up is this 
two-party system, which, you know, some folks would argue is built to maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. So it's a... Well, and I mean, I believe that they're essentially the same thing. It's it. They have different uh, ways of recruiting voters for each side, but it's all the same machine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely. Yeah, I've heard this argument a bunch. I think, and I think there's definitely different ideas, right? And I think you know, if you have one party, you have more folks that are active in climate change and environmental stuff. More folks that are kind of less regulation. You have those sort of distinctions. Um, but yeah, there's not a huge choice for sure. And then, you know, if you want to th run it as an alternative candidate, you can't get e even onto the debate, no, right? You get and squashed. You, can't, you get squashed and you can't, you can't see, you can't break into that system. So it's, it's challenging. And then talking about change is, you know, very hard to do. And I think one of the things that has really distinguished at least it did, you know, until January 6th, is the smooth transition of power in the United States, right? So you've always had, it's been a hallmark. And it's in fact the hallmark of democracies that have survived in different places. And we take it for granted here and it, it could go away, right? It could go away, free, you know, fair, free, all those robust elections, those things that um, no matter who you vote for, you know, there is legitimate president that needs to govern us one way or another. And when you have those threats to the internal systems of how a democracy functions, you got huge problems coming down the road. Because what you know for sure is one party doesn't stay in power. Like they're shifting because mm -hmm. these issues are really complicated, mm -hmm. right? And people overpromise and underperform. And that's mm -hmm. traditionally been the role of government, I think pisses people off and they vote somebody else in. And it, that's totally okay as long as you have that system that preserves that. But when that starts to break down, you got you got trouble. Yeah, I agree. We need more we need more choices. And I think that's um, I think that's an issue with the primary system because they're concerned that if uh, let's say you had a Republican incumbent and then you had nine Democrats running against them. They're worried that it's going to split amongst nine people and then the Republican will win. No problem. Well, you know what? It should be open to anyone and everyone. Oh, yeah. It, like Ricky down the street should be able to run if he wants to and get five votes. Like who cares? That doesn't support the system that the people in charge want to proliferate. They yeah. want two choices. Yeah, because it makes it easier. And then, you know, if your corporations, you you know, and some corporations back both candidates, right? Or some industries or sure. lobbyist groups back both candidates. But, you know, I will tell you that um, it's interesting, right? As humans, we don't have that big of a perspective, right? We get to live 80, 90 years if we're lucky, right? Um, and so we don't have a huge perspective on things, Um except what we've learned before from history. But what the United States is becoming now is a more diverse place than it's ever been before. And that's changing. And that is going to inevitably change who's running for office, how many choices they are, there are. And I think you're going to see folks, I, I hope at some level, saying, you know what? we're done with just these two choices, right? We want to have a more pluralistic, we want to have different ideas um, engaged and look at issues that we can help solve different 
different ways. And we'll see. I mean, I think we see a lot of that with the houseless crisis here in Portland. You know, it's, I think it seems to me, it seems really inhumane to let people live in those conditions on the street, especially mm -hmm. when I think we've got resources and all their ideas to kind of work on things. But it's a, a crisis that is not being solved that I, I, at least I see that, right? I mean, maybe there are areas and I know there's sweeps and thinking back and forth, but again, um, it looks like you, you like shut down one area and folks move to another area. That's not a solution, right? That's moving the problem around. So you can say, look, this block is now clean, but folks have moved to another area and you're not addressing the things like housing, healthcare, wraparound services, you know, all of these things that a lot of folks need whether you live in a house that's attached to a foundation or you're in a tent on the street. Yeah, the problem is there are a number of people who who think it's not society's response, uh, society's problem to be responsible for everyone. But the thing is, if you take care of everyone, then there are the things you don't have to worry about. If you help out people who are having trouble, then you don't have to worry about your car getting stolen or your house getting broken into. I mean, the goal should be to at least get everyone to a position of mental health and the ability to do something productive with your life. It, I think the biggest issue that we have now, and it's probably been an issue forever, it's just the, the, the class war, the, the income disparity between the super rich and the very, very poor. And I, I really think that the reason nothing has happened yet is because, at least in this country, is Americans don't, they're not at a point where they have nothing to lose. There are so many people who are like, well, I got a car payment. Well, I got a house. Well, my kids are in school. It hasn't become so bad that they'll revolt. I mean, if you look at like the French Revolution, things got so bad. They were so poor that they, they freaked out and lost it. And then things changed. I don't think, I think that's the goal of what's happening right now is to just keep everyone in America just above that spot where they'll freak out. If you just keep them happy enough, then you don't have to worry about anything getting overthrown. Yeah, and you've got some really good reality TV for folks to watch, right, when they do get concerned about folks so they don't deal with the real – nothing to see here, right? There's nothing to see here. Go mm -hmm. watch Home and watch Netflix or TV. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think um, – I teach a class called Health, Happiness, and Human Rights at Portland State. It's a year-long seminar. And we talk a lot about, you know, what is society's role at a base level to folks and and should you have a safety net? You know, we have a really indiv individualistic approach here to the United States, right? So we have the Constitution, which is laid out in articles, which says the government, you can do these things. But then we've also got the amendments. And the first 10 amendments are the Bill of Rights, which that you and I possess those things. And sometimes that individualism, I don't think, I think a lot of it has seeped into, of course, a lot of politics. And then it becomes who's responsible, like what is the government responsible for? So we just got back from Europe. So very interesting, and I'm not like Pollyannish about this all. You know, Denmark, Sweden, other places in Northern Europe have issues, right? They're they're not, you know, nothing is a perfect society. But I will tell you, is um, you know, we were in Copenhagen, and you know, 
yeah, there was a couple of people without homes living on the streets maybe, but because of the social safety net, and again, you know, there are other folks and again, other issues as well, but you know, you get housing and paid to go to school and accountable for things that you're doing, but like food and shelter and medical care, education, those things are covered and subsidized by the state. So I'll give you a really specific example. So we were in Copenhagen. They have the largest, I think this is right, the largest safe injection site in Europe or maybe in that area of Europe. And what that means is that even though drugs are technically illegal in Denmark, like you can go to jail for a joint of marijuana, right? Um, which is really interesting contrast, right? Because Commercial sex is decriminalized, but they've chosen to take this approach with drugs, right? <laughs> so, however, nobody really does that or you get a ticket or something. But right outside of the largest safe injection site in Copenhagen, you'd think you have people either ODing or laying on the streets or begging or trying to like living there and then just kind of going to get their drug. Not the case at all. Like clean. Um, and I was out with kind of folks that work at folks, you know, at night as well. So the problems that we experience here because we don't provide that safety net, I think are by far more expensive and create much more dangerous conditions than they have there. If we would invest money early on in different things, what we call an upstream approach as opposed to a downstream approach, downstream approaches in social work and criminal justice are reactive. So you commit a crime, you go to jail, downstream approach, right? Um, maybe we get you some psychiatric help early or get you on meds or get you an education or get you food and housing and it prevents those things. That's an upstream approach. And so uh, we're really good at downstream approaches here in the United States. We're good at people putting in people in jail. Um, we're not so good at working at those issues from the top, mm -hmm. which requires investment and time and also as Americans, I'm not speaking for all Americans, but um, of course, but you know, we don't have really long attention spans sometimes, right? So if you got a problem and it ain't fixed, you know, or that you're not going to see the payoff for 10 years, it's hard to get somebody to endorse that, especially a politician that's got an election in two years or six years or four years. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting cycle. Um, which is why, I know I keep going back to this, but which is why I think the structure of democracy is so important, right? And be able to make those changes and make those votings, you know, and I'd like to see some tweaks, right? For sure. I'd like to see this Citizens United decision, which is the Supreme Court decision on money and politics go in the exact opposite direction. Um, and then I think you can get out some of the things that you've been talking about, like these ideas from your neighbor down the street to talk to and let the ideas create momentum and the good ones rise to the top and do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do that right now. No, we, there's a lot of work to do. And I don't know. I just get pretty negative. On it. <laughs> it's <laughs> easy it, to get negative for it sure. It just yeah. seems insurmountable. And um, I don't know, people, like you said, they get distracted and they get, they, they become uh, focused on things that don't really matter. And I don't know. Yeah. This... And you can make stuff up, right? With social media and the internet. I mean, what Alex Jones got hit for what billion dollars or something? Nine hundred sixty-five million. Nine sixty-five mil. There yeah, you that's, go. So. That's insane because I don't know why. It's not like he's ever going to be able to pay that back. No, and I, I didn't look at the judgment, and you, you see that a lot, right? You've got um, 
that judgment is probably broken up into like you know actual damages and then punitive damages and punitive damages are for punishment they don't go always to the victims the part of that will go to the state or some small portion of that depending on what state you're in so yeah i think i don't think he's a billionaire i don't think he's got the ability to pay that or do that but you know the argument is that it sends a message and but it's also it's interesting it's also a downstream approach to the problem right because we don't you can say whatever you want and you can blast whatever you want and there's no you know the i mean we have first amendment which guarantees folks free speech congress shall make no law it's literally the first words of that amendment I mean, that's not really true because we make laws all the time that regulate speech but when you begin from that starting point and most countries in the world do not have free speech i mean you know even canada yeah, it, well, or the UK. I mean, try say something about, you know, the, the Chinese government if you're like in Singapore or something like that, you know, or Hong Kong rather, right? Like, you you know, you're not going to be like, oh, <laughs> somebody's going to show up your door and take you away. So when you begin with that assumption, the argument is that do you let all this speech in and then the marketplace kind of sorts that out, right? What the truth, the truth is supposed to emerge from that. Well, but. yeah, I, I am a strong believer in the First Amendment. I think, I think you need people to say crazy stuff. You need to hear all opinions. We need to teach people to critically think and determine what could be wrong or what could be fake. Um, I, I had a guy on here who believes in flat earth. I don't believe in that. I wanted to hear what he had to say. Yeah. That you should not squash him. He could be right. It seems completely illogical. It seems impossible. There's so much evidence saying that we're on a round globe right. circling the sun. Yeah. I still want to hear what he has to say. You can't squash that stuff. You need people to come up with crazy theories or to, to, uh, to um, confront the status quo. Yeah, I get that. And the question, of course, is, you know, the devil is in the details, right? At what, like, do you let all speech, you know, do you let hate speech come out and racist speech that attacks folks? What if you have speech that does irreparable damage to a company that's a lie, right? Like, does the speech have to be truthful at some level? So, and, and the reason, <clears throat> it's interesting because if you read the constitution, it literally says Congress shall make no law. But we have, I don't know about hundreds, but yeah, probably hundreds of cases that have gone through the Supreme Court, certainly thousands around the country that deal with free speech, you know, and what are those limits of free speech and what can you say and what you can't say? And, but I would agree, like, there's a lot of stuff you can't say nowadays. Um, and some of it is for the better and some of it's not because, you know, um, <clears throat> if you want to teach critical thinking, and like you said, you need to teach people how to uncover what their truth is and what the truth is and distinguish from those sources. And if you ban that, you ne that's never going to happen. And so I think engaging with rhetoric and words, even words that are really offensive to you, becomes really important. And uh, and then being able to deconstruct that and teach people how to critically think. I mean, I I don't know how old you are, but like I said, I'm 54, right? So um, I'm an Xer, right? So I bridge that gap between you know pre-social media and then social media now. But 
you know, you just used to get your info from the news, and I think most folks get it from Instagram or Facebook. I'm dating myself, right? Or TikTok. Now. Yeah, the the problem is that <clears throat> you get forced into an echo chamber, and then you don't <clears throat> consider other yeah. opinions or other perspectives, and that is a real problem. Yeah, that's huge. So, like, I don't. You've seen the social dilemma. Maybe yeah. Okay. Right. So it's that. This is the argument, right? That the the money-making ventures, right? The algorithms that are designed by people that are way smarter than me. Um, the idea is to keep you on, right? Because the longer you're on whatever platform you're on, the more money you sell to advertisers, the more things that you're exposed to. And we know people want to hear stuff. They don't want to be challenged on their ideals, right? They don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable comfortable, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of what we've done in the 20th and 21st century, right, is we've the comforts of home, right? Well, that's extended to the comforts of the brain and thought and all of these things now, which is just reinforced by social media a lot. So yeah, you can seek out debates and diverse opinions, but by far the majority of folks looking to this want to just get fed the same stuff over and over and over. So if you're a flat earther and that's what you believe and that's what you're typing into YouTube and the algorithm is just eating that up and kicking you out, not videos and why you're wrong, but videos that bolster your belief. And the reason is because that's what keeps you engaged in the platform, which sure. is monetized. So that's that part's a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a completely different world in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the next 10 or 15, because I don't think, I don't think we're prepared for what we've done. I don't think we can handle this, this flow of information and the ability to see anything and everything all the time. Um, Cause then you see nothing, right? You're just submerged in information. Well, yeah, the, the thing that I'm sure they've done studies on um, is creativity. And what happens to you when you're not doing anything? And the example I always give when I'm talking to my kids, because I'm terrified that they're on their phones too much, is when you're being fed information like that, you're not allowing your brain to yeah. wander. And so you go to the grocery store and you're standing in line waiting to go through the checkout or whatever, and everybody's default is just pull out their phone and start looking at something. And I always try to just like, not do that and like stare at a magazine cover or look at something and try to just, that is something, I feel like maybe we're gonna slowly become less creative because nobody's just sitting there pondering stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah. So um, one of the things that we've also talked about is how social media has displaced geography, right? So um, our community before was, you and me are having a conversation right now. When was the last time this happened without microphones on the street, right? I mean, not, people have different have time and stuff, but um, you know, you what social media has done is it's removed those surroundings. So now you're just kind of focused on this device, which is feeding you information, not from where you're at, right? Unless you're like, you know, using the Safeway app, right? And you're like, okay, this is on sale. I'm going to go to this aisle. But for the most part, that's not happening. And so you're sucked into the app. And so you're ignoring the surroundings, immediate surroundings around you. And, and what that does is remove you from geography. And we know that history of human relationships are built on geography and who's local and who you're communicating with. And that combined with COVID has done a number on a lot of the 18, 19, 20, 17, 
16-year-olds that I've come in contact with. And the idea of um, removing those elements is challenging. And we have um, – so in my class, we have – it's a cell phone, cell phone free area for an hour and 15 minutes. And I also – we have a couple of kids for, or for whatever reasons use um, – I have to use an iPad. Uh, an iPad or something, but for the most part, computers are gone. You are taking notes with a piece of paper in a notebook, old school. And my apologies to the trees and the forest, right? But hopefully, it's and there's something about that, right? Psychologists say when you are writing down, when you are engaged in the area, um, when you're doing that physical activity, that something happens with your brain and it turns on, and yeah, and so things that you can do to break it especially, but even adults, you know, older folks suffer that from as well. Um, I spent a lot of time working with youth sports as well. And I think it's become, you know, now just as important as other, and whether it's sports or music or art or theater, any of these other things, these creative engagements, when electronic and outside influences are removed, causes connections in kids' brains that I think are really healthy. So when you're on a softball field and you have to make a strategic decision about where the ball is going, that's a creative decision, right? You're making it. You're making a decision similar to the decision an artist is going to make if they're looking at a blank canvas and choosing which colors to use or which medium to do. Same thing with a musician, right? Same thing with anything that you're doing, reading, I think. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of divorcing yourself and then teaching folks the tools to try to use them. Yeah, because technology is responsible for a lot of great things, but it is definitely going to change our brain chemistry. It's going to make us do things differently. And it it has a lot of positive aspects. Um, but I don't know. There's no going back at this point. No. I just... You can't go back. You're not going to get rid of it unless there's some like EMP pulse that knocks it all out. Yeah, you're not going back, right? It's here. And the question is, what? how do you humanize it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I had to sign like a form or something for my kids the other day for school. And I was telling them how I don't I, – I suck at writing now. I, I never write anything except my name when I'm signing something. I never write a note or a letter or it, everything is typing or texting. And so my handwriting is garbage. Right. Well, you look at um, – yeah, I mean there, there has been a uh, – and even a – yeah, you're texting. I mean I see this with papers that I grade, right, and look at and engage with students. The, the lost form of writing, right, where you actually have to have organization and topic sentences and verbs that come together and yeah, our communication patterns have changed and – that's being lost at some level and it's been a fight to keep to try to get it back because I think writing is still the basis of really good communication and you know whether it's a legal document or something I've signed or you're communicating with your boss or you're working in teams and working more in teams now in corporations then those are all really important elements of communication yeah so, yep. yeah well we got to get you out of here here okay. in a few but uh let's go back to <clears throat> trafficking in Portland and what 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 do you do what what's your what's your goal and process for finding these people and helping them and trying to eliminate this problem 
Okay. So, um, yeah, and I think ultimately that's kind of, you know, you you definitely want to help the folks that need help and get services to those folks that want out or want different areas or want support in different ways. So um, <clears throat> when we did the first study, and we've done things ranging from like looking at risk factors and trying to get what we call a landscape of who is being commercially exploited in Portland, um, and then we did follow-up studies with DHS, and then we've done studies as diverse of like anatomy of a human trafficking investigation, tattoos and trafficking. I've interviewed foster care parents that have worked with kids that were exploited, um, which was a, a huge area and issue. Um, they were helping? Yeah. Or they so didn't these know? Were, no, no, no. So these were um, – so this study – well, what happened is um, – I was looking at one of the studies and we looked at one of the statistics we had that said that the nor if you're a foster care kid that comes into the foster care system in Oregon, depending on what age you get, your average placement is about three families. I can't remember what the exact number, 3.2 families. If you've been trafficked previously or you've been commercially exploited, sexually exploited, and and you know, a lot of kids, those kids get removed from homes, your placement rate is like 11 or 12 families. So that's huge, right? That's four times, three to four times the number. So kids You're saying that, going through 11 different families? Yeah, because these are, yeah, because you've gotten, yeah, it, you've been through intense commercial sexual exploitation experience that's had massive trauma on you. You've got PTSD. And now you're with a foster care family that may or may not be able to have the skills to kind of work with that. And foster care families, for the most part, are amazing, right? Like, like there's a huge crisis in this state because we don't have enough. So the people that do this work, it, it, I, I can't thank them enough, right? And um, because really, they're not getting much from the state and it's hard. So you're working with youth and survivors that, you know, have been exploited by every adult they've made in contact with. And many times they're dealing with PTSD. And so one minute they're like sticking their middle finger, spitting in your face. And the next second they're crying at the doorway, deciding whether they should run or not. Hmm. Because any exploit, any situation that you've engaged with has always been for something. So that one study, we just saw that number disparity. And I was like, well, certainly somebody smarter than me has looked at interviewed foster care families that have worked with these kids, nothing. No, none, we searched the world, we searched the country. So we're like, well, let's do it here. So that was supported by the state, which I'm very grateful for. So we were able to interview a bunch of families that work with this and kind of develop best practices, work that's been done, uh, behaviors, things to look for. So that's just one study. So to, so to go back to kind of your original question is that um, there's a couple of ways to do this. One is to just kind of be out there from a harm reduction perspective. So if you need help, there's lots of ways to kind of get help. There's places to call, not just law enforcement, but social workers. There's networks. There's a lot of nonprofit groups that work in this area as well, which is kind of a more of a harm reduction approach because maybe you're not ready, right? But maybe you just need a package for safe sex or maybe you do want to get out. Um, and there's different groups and organizations that work there. It's very challenging for kind of somebody who's not engaged in that area or life to say, oh, yeah, that person's being trafficked. Oh, yeah, that person's there behind their will. Well, it seems like <clears throat> if you had a, a younger kid, you know, under 18, yeah. then, I mean, it's not like they're going to school. They probably don't have a cell phone. So, I well, mean, they, yeah, 
they definitely have a cell phone. Yeah. Everybody has a cell phone. And so, um, and in fact, this is one of the research discovers, right? Like one of the worst things that you can do to like a kid, like working with the foster care families that are going to run, or even if they're not run, it's punishment is take their cell phone. Because now you've done, well, what have you done when you take their cell phone? Taken everything. You've taken off your only form of communication and linked yeah. to them. And and that is probably the worst thing that you can do from a harm reduction because at that point you've just written that person off. So cell phones are ubiquitous. And so the again, maybe they're being monitored. Maybe there's a pimp nearby. If you are under 18 years old, this is a non-argument. So if you are we we've just finished up studies on buyers looking at differences from people that um have purchased sex from uh, what they call luring a minor and adults. And so um, if you are doing that with a child, you should go to prison. Like, and that, like, does there, I don't think there's any gray area there at all. Like, if you are under 18 or 21, you cannot consent to commercial sex. Like, I, for me, that's not an issue. And from the research, you know, then the, the advocates and the Questions come if when you're adults, right? And so, um, you know, you've got also a lot of other groups these days. You've got um, I just saw this documentary on online groups that are doing the online predator stuff, right? They're putting themselves out there as kids, and the police aren't involved, but they're scaring folks. We have a group in Oregon that's just something similar, and so um, I think it's challenging. But I think you have really robust advocacy. You take a really good harm reduction approach that says, you know, you can come and talk to me and I'm not going to call the cops. Um, you can make sure that you've got areas that are high traffic that you're monitoring, right? Street-based sex workers are generally, not all the time, but generally the most exploited. Um, what if you drove down 82nd and you pretended that you wanted to pick someone up and then they got in the car and you're like, hey, do you want to get out of here? Like, I'm trying to help you. Why like, would that person trust you over and over again? I mean, that's not like, yeah. you know, like we're stepping into this role as like, you know, heroes and saviors, especially as guys, right? Like why would somebody trust you over and over again to do that? And you don't know what the situation is. You could be endangering that person worse because they've got a trafficker that's watching this. Yeah. And if something doesn't go down, they're not going to take it out on you. They're going to take it out on that person that they're controlling. Yeah. So I like – Citizen vigilante stuff, like I understand, but like I just, you know, hopefully law enforcement are trained professionals with enough backup and services and wraparound services because what happens if that person actually says, yes, get me out of here? What, do you, what are you going to do? Are you going to take them to your house? Are you going to take them to a shelter? Do you know where the shelters are? Mm -hmm. If there's PTSD, like you have to be a trained psychologist to work with folks. The other thing that we know from the research is that it's not a zero-sum game there. So first contact matters. So if the first contact with somebody that's trafficked is negative, whether that's with law enforcement or somewhere else, you sh you've shut that person down and it's hard to get them back to help cooperate, which is why – a lot of police now, when you work in stings in these areas, they're not alone. They're going in with trained advocates, a lot of which are former sex workers or trafficking victims. They're going in with social services folks that can understand what the services are. I mean, it's not – you're not just breaking down doors, right? This idea of like showing up and rescuing somebody while their goals are very noble rarely works out to everyone's benefit. And 
Yeah. And I mean, I can't even imagine the, the psychological yeah. issue that, that a person in that position would have. I mean, that, that wrecked your life. You yeah. Could, you could potentially overcome it in 20 or 30 years of therapy, but that is, that would never leave you. If somebody owned you at some point in your life yeah. and forced you to work sure. in whatever way. Yeah. Those bonds are, I mean, they, yeah, they run deep and they're hard and it takes trained professionals to work on folks and it depends on a million other things. The new study that we've just started to embark on actually uh, is starting to look at what we call familial or generational trafficking. And this is when you've been either trafficked by somebody in your family or you've got relatives that were in life or trafficked and it's kind of worked down to you. So that's... I've heard of that. Talk about a year, yeah. and I've also heard about uh, selling organs. Is yeah, that... so we don't see a lot of that here in the states, and there is a robust. I mean, you can buy an organ on the internet, right? It's not totally legal, right? And if um, what was the website, uh, the Silk Road, right, which is no longer functioning now, but was this fascinating read. If you've read a book called Kingpin, it's about the kid that started it. It's an online marketplace that started with mushrooms and then turned to drugs and then ended up with guns and then organs. So yeah, some areas exclude that from human trafficking, but there is a large, and there's been research done on you know organ trafficking and transplants and what it costs for a kidney and depending on what area of the world you're in. So yeah, it, it human beings are uh, endlessly creative in ways to exploit each other, unfortunately. And then, you know, that said, um, I will also tell you that I have seen human beings, the power of the human spirit, I have seen overcome insurmountable odds that I would just have rolled over and died in. So, uh, and those are awesome stories, right? And there are ways, there are five areas of hope, you know, and because mm -hmm. it's hard, you see a lot of trauma and tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I have reached out to the Justice League. You know who Justice League? May I'm saying it wrong. International Justice Mission, IJM. There, there's a, an institution in Portland, and I know them because I've done live events with them before. And I was actually a part of uh, an interview where they had women who had been trafficked. Wow. And that would be a, a very interesting discussion, but I, I think most of the people who have been in that situation, there's just too much trauma. They can't well, so doing something like this yeah. would be too much. I, I think you'd find your, there are some really, we have some very, they call them um, life experience experts. I can't, I, I'm remembering, I'm, I'm, I'm missing up the, but we have some really strong survivor advocates in this city. So I think you actually probably could have a conversation with some folks. And I think you're going to get a completely different perspective as well because they've lived through the life and they've been through these things. So yeah, you might have a lot of survivors that are like, yeah, this is never okay and it's always exploitive. And and then you'd have others that say, you know what, it's work and we need to regulate it as work. But it's a really important perspective. Mm -hmm. That is a good spot. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you. No problem. Thank Appreciate you very it. much for, for bringing me in. Yep. All right.